Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On August 11th, 1995, 36-year-old Robert Jeffrey reported for work as a subway operator for the Toronto Transit Commission. It was his second day on the job. He had spent only 12 days training to be a subway driver. On the last day of training, Jeffrey took a driving test and then wrote a final exam. When he answered a few questions wrong on the exam, an instructor told him to try again so that he could score the 100% he needed to pass the course. On his first day on the job, Jeffrey felt terrified. He didn't think he was ready to operate a subway on his own. He didn't understand a lot of what he had been taught, especially the mechanics of the train. But instructors had reassured him that his worries would eventually pass with experience. He just needed to trust the system. On his first shift, Jeffrey drove the subway solo. At one point, he misjudged the train's speed and he went through a red light. That tripped the train's emergency brakes. He wasn't disciplined for the mistake or told to write up a report. He wasn't offered more training. Instead, Jeffrey reported to work the next day for his second shift. I'm Kathy Kinzora. This is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're digging into the archive of my previous podcast, The History of 1995, to bring you an incredible life and death story on Canada's busiest subway system. This is the story of the TTC subway crash. It was an ordinary, warm, late summer Friday night, and thousands of Toronto residents were on their evening commute home. At around 6 p.m., just at the tail end of rush hour, subway train 34, traveling southbound on the Spadina line, was stopped between the St. Clair West and DuPont stations. A faulty signal, which had been reported by at least two other operators earlier that day, and had yet to be fixed, tripped a safety device that prevented the subway train from proceeding. The driver of train 34 waited for the light to change. As the minutes passed, passengers were no doubt annoyed by the delay, anxious to get their weekend started. While working as a broadcast journalist in Toronto, I covered a coroner's inquest in January 1996 which detailed the terrifying moments of what happened next. While train 34 waited at the light, 37-year-old Jean McNabb and her five-year-old son Ricky boarded train 35, driven by Robert Jeffrey on his second day on the job. Little Ricky waved at Jeffrey, but the new driver was looking straight ahead and didn't wave back. Like many young children, Ricky liked to ride at the front of the train so he could watch out the windows as they were speeding through the subway tunnels. But when they got on board, a young woman was already in that spot. So Jean and Ricky picked another spot right behind the driver's booth. When they left the station, they had no way of knowing that up ahead, 
train 34 was still stopped at the faulty signal. Jeffrey received a yellow over green signal, which told him to proceed with caution because the next signal was red. Instead, Jeffrey proceeded at full power, about 50 kilometers an hour to the next signal, which was showing red. The inexperienced operator continued through the red signal without stopping. That red signal was equipped with a trip arm designed to stop any train that went through it. The arm was raised as it should be with a red light, but a design flaw prevented the trip arm from activating the brakes as train 35 went speeding by. Jeffrey then went by the next signal, which was displayed in two locations to give operators a better view. Both of those lights were red. Again, train 35 failed to stop, and tragically, at this signal, there was no trip arm. Train 35 began a long, sweeping turn in the Russell Hill Tunnel. And as it came to the end of the turn, Jeffrey saw the rear of train 34 stopped on the tracks ahead at the faulty signal. Jeffrey screamed, he jumped from his seat, and he applied full braking power but train 35 rammed into the rear of train 34, going at about 55 kilometers per hour. Jean McNabb heard the scream. She got scared and she wrapped her arms around her son. Then she heard the metal screeching of the brakes. McNabb told her son to put his head down and close his eyes. Then she heard a loud bang. Melvin Lumsden, the guard in the second-last car of Train 34, was the first person to call in the accident. He had been thrown to the floor by the impact and thought maybe a bomb went off. I don't know what happened. It's either something blew up or something hit us from the back. And um, a lot of my passengers are on the floor at this moment. I am trying to get back to the rear to see what's going on. Could you try and get us some help down here, please? People were trapped beneath seats and the aluminum frame amid broken glass and debris. There was blood running down the floor. People started screaming. The front of train 35 and the rear of train 34 were a massive tangle of crumpled metal, insulation, seat cushions, and the personal belongings of passengers. Train 35 had basically slid underneath train 34 and there was a 15 to 20 foot overlap. Inside train 35, Jean McNabb heard Ricky calling, mommy, mommy, from somewhere in the dark. Following the collision, Jeffrey had ended up on top of her, separated by a chunk of metal and other debris. A metal pole had pierced her leg. Her son was pinned beneath her. With loud hissing all around her, she feared the subway might explode. She tried to comfort her son and assured him they would be rescued soon. She reached through a hole in the debris and held hands with Jeffrey until the rescuers arrived. Jeffrey also tried to comfort young Ricky with words of encouragement. For 45 minutes, they waited in the dark for rescuers to arrive. The young Vietnamese woman that was sitting in the front seat where Ricky wanted to sit was 22-year-old Hui Xian Lin. 
She had come to Canada just a year earlier to marry her husband and worked at an upholstery factory as a seamstress. She was on her way home from working overtime the night of the accident. Her entire lower body was trapped in the wreckage, but she was still alive. Meantime, back inside train 34, the train that was rear-ended, a couple on their way home from work were also trapped in the wreckage. 37-year-old Roberto Reyes was pinned from the waist down, and 33-year-old Christina Reyes was almost completely covered in debris. A young man who had been sitting beside the Filipino couple before the crash spoke to Roberto in his native tongue in an effort to calm him down. The young man could only see Christina's arms in the wreckage. He tried to wake her up, but there was no response. Melvin Lumsden, the subway guard who called in the accident, made his way back to the last car to assess the damage. Then he waited with Roberto for help to arrive. Roberto kept asking him where his wife was. He was unable to see that she was lying lifeless on the floor beside them in the dark, covered in debris. Remember, this is 1995. No one had a smartphone with a flashlight. And the TTC had denied a request earlier that year to supply subway operators with flashlights. So it was pitch black inside the subway car. Dominic DeSantis, the driver of train 34, was thrown into the windshield and the front car began to fill up with thick smoke and the pungent smell of an electrical fire. DeSantis started to walk back to see what was going on. When he heard a passenger yell, fire, he decided to take action. He jumped from the train into the tunnel and tried to call transit control from a nearby phone, but he got a recorded message. So DeSantis made the decision to cut electricity to the live power rail. Next, he hooked an emergency ladder to the front of the train and started ushering passengers from the train. He sent them walking down the tunnel to the next station. Kenneth Edgar was the guard on train 35. He was in the second to last car when their train slammed into the back of the stop train. Within a few minutes, he also contacted transit control. Can you tell us what's going on there, please? Yeah, I'm the guard on 35. I can't get a hold of my partner. The train has hit something. There's damage. Uh, in the second car, I believe, the lights are out and we have people hurt. Back at transit control, confusion reigned. 911 was called and they were asked to report to the subway station just past the accident to assist passengers who had collapsed. Because of this mix-up, police officers and paramedics waited for 10 or 15 minutes on the subway platform for a train with ill passengers to arrive. When they tried to call transit control, they too got a recorded message. When police and paramedics finally started to walk up the tunnel, they started to see passengers making their way through the dimly lit tunnel. They were covered in black soot and they looked dazed and confused walking like zombies through a haze of smoke. 
That's when a massive rescue effort swung into gear. And for the next eight and a half hours, 115 firefighters, 100 paramedics, and 130 police officers would work to free seven passengers trapped in the wreckage. When they arrived at the crash site, it was a scene of utter devastation. There's a lot of confusion down there. Uh, police officers tell me the wreckage is, is considerable to the two vehicles, and uh, much of the damage and much of what remains of the vehicles or, or, the, or the rail cars uh, is unrecognizable. Rescuers could hear trapped passengers groaning and screaming, and there was twisted metal everywhere. They walked through train 34 to the last car, but couldn't get past. The impact had caused the two trains to balloon up and out, filling up the entire tunnel. The mangled wreckage completely blocked the tunnel and the air vents. Temperatures inside quickly climbed to over 100 degrees, making conditions unbearable for trapped passengers and rescuers. An emergency call was made for ice and bottled water to be brought to the scene. Toronto Police Sergeant Edward Lamch was there and remembers what it was like. It was horrendously hot down there. We were, we were going through a pint of water every 20 minutes and we still weren't comfortable at the time. Uh, the, uh, the trains were had so much damage to them. There were a lot of sharp objects. You have to be careful with sharp objects because uh, you, know, you can end up cutting yourself. The halogen lights added to a problem. They were very hot and it created more heat. There was no air circulation. Overall, uh, it was just a pretty poor environment to work in, but everybody down there gave all they had and much more. Nobody wanted to leave. Adding to the stifling heat and darkness, portable radios weren't working down in the subway tunnel. And requests for medical supplies and firefighting equipment had to be conveyed by runners from the crash scene to the surface. Having no direct communication with the surface made it impossible for paramedics tending to the trapped riders to talk directly with a doctor at the hospital about the victim's conditions. Passengers on train 35 had to escape by going to the back of that train and then walking through the dimly lit tunnel to an emergency exit. However, that exit opened up to a wooded ravine. They had to scramble up the ravine and ended up in a quiet neighborhood to the surprise of residents who quickly sprang into action to help the wounded. Down in the tunnel, rescuers used their bare hands to pick through metal to free the seven people trapped in the wreckage. It took nearly two hours to free the driver, Robert Jeffrey, along with Gene McNabb and little five-year-old Ricky. Emotions ran high when all three were safely evacuated. They all escaped with non-life-threatening injuries. Jeffrey, miraculously, suffered only a broken collarbone, broken ribs, and abrasions. They still have four trapped down there, two deceased and two who are in very serious condition, although they are um, able to get to them and provide them with uh, emergency medical assistance. Uh, I had heard earlier, speaking to an ambulance uh, commander, that uh, they were really concerned about the, the difficulty to move them out. I had spoken to one police officer who had crawled through the wreckage, and he, he indicates that the, it's hard, difficult to determine where the first car of one train uh, ends and the, and the last car of another train begins. But the wreckage is substantial. Rescue efforts were getting nowhere with 23-year-old Hui Xian Lin, who was at the front of train 35 when it slammed into the stop train. 
Remember, she was pinned from the waist down under a pile of debris, but she was conscious. Firefighters cradled her head and whispered words of encouragement to her while others tried to free her. Paramedics didn't call a doctor to the scene right away because her condition was stable and firefighters kept saying they would get her out soon. Her blood pressure dipped once, but paramedics were able to stabilize her by providing fluids. They didn't realize she was slowly bleeding to death because a large gash to her ankle wasn't visible under the debris. Four hours later, doctors were finally called from a nearby hospital. By now, Hui Xianlin had lost a lot of blood, and a doctor was needed to give her a blood transfusion. Dr. Andrew McCallum received the call at home around 10 p.m. He was the head of emergency services at Sunnybrook Health Science Center. Remembering the Oklahoma City bombing earlier that year, where doctors had to amputate a woman's leg to free her from the rubble, Dr. McCallum brought his surgical equipment, including a bone saw, just in case. Well, being in the tunnel was pretty horrific. The, uh, it was hot, it was dangerous. There were there's wreckage everywhere. It was uh, seen like anything, nothing I'd ever seen before. I usually work in lighted, safe areas, or relatively safe emergency, emergency departments. Uh, so this is totally outside my usual experience. Dressed in surgical scrubs, Dr. McCallum crawled through the wreckage to get to the trapped woman. When he got to Lynn, she was still conscious, but anxious and confused. She was also in shock, having lost 40 to 50% of her blood. After repeated blood infusions failed to improve her vital signs, Dr. McCallum knew that Lynn was in danger and she wouldn't survive much longer. 50 minutes after arriving on the scene, in the cramped conditions, Dr. McCallum amputated Lynn's leg with a firefighter saw. But it was too late. Her breathing and heart rhythm quickly deteriorated as she fell into the final stages of shock. She died just before midnight, six hours after the crash. The two firefighters who had been cradling her head broke down and had to be lifted from the tunnel by colleagues. Later, Dr. McCallum admitted that if he was called sooner, he may have been able to save her life. But he wasn't surprised that he wasn't called. Well, the, again, the fact was that there was, a, there was a lot going on. This is a dynamic situation. There were multiple casualties. And by definition, this is a situation where the available resources are overwhelmed so that the time period that occurred was, in fact, seemed like minutes. So that the time is not astonishing to me at all. Dr. McCallum also attended to Roberto Reyes, trapped in train 34. Both of his legs were amputated to remove him from the wreckage. Fortunately, he survived. However, his wife Christina was pronounced dead at the scene from massive internal injuries. Kinga Zabo also lost her life that night. The 43-year-old was on her way home from work and was planning on going to the cottage that weekend with her husband and six-year-old son. Kinga was a former Olympic basketball player from Romania. She and her husband, who was also a Romanian athlete, defected to Canada at the 1976 Montreal Olympics. She died from massive internal injuries. 
A pathologist said she likely died within 20 minutes of the crash. The last of the seven passengers trapped in the wreckage was freed just before 3 a.m., nine hours after the collision. In all, three women died and 30 others were seriously injured. When the sun came up the next day, the task of cleaning up the wreckage began in earnest. Sweat, hand tools, and brute force were used by teams of TTC employees, along with Toronto fire crews and police officers. They took turns underground at the painstaking and difficult task of separating the twisted metal of the two subways. They hauled wreckage out of the ground, bit by bit, to separate the two trains. Air Canada donated a portable air conditioning truck to pump cool air into the tunnel, providing a bit of relief from the 100-degree temperatures. The first task was to remove four cars from train 35. Those four cars would be moved back along the track to a nearby subway yard. Then, around 2 p.m., 20 hours after the accident, the trains were finally separated by diesel trains that were used to pull them apart. They were towed to the subway yard where they were placed under police guard. Eight days later, the Spadina line of the Toronto subway system reopened. The first subway halted at the crash site for a moment of silence. Then the train continued south, blaring its horn through the stretch where the twisted wreckage of the trains had been. The Toronto Star reported in 1995 that an inspector was on board that train, riding at the front window, making sure it did not bypass any red signals. During the nine days since the crash, the TTC had tested 879 trip arms throughout the system. At least one other faulty trip arm was found. The TTC launched a review of the operation, maintenance, inspections, and design of the subway signal system. The chief coroner of Ontario also called an inquest into the crash. Robert Jeffrey, the driver of Train 35, was on medical leave, recovering from his injuries. He was questioned several times by police, and it was decided that no charges would be laid. Five months later, the Toronto Transit Commission released a 200-page report prepared by an internal safety team. The cause of the accident was primarily placed on rookie driver Robert Jeffrey, who ran three red lights and on the faulty trip arm that could have stopped the train but failed. The head of the TTC, David Gunn, said all of the faulty trip arms had been fixed, but it was still a mystery as to why Jeffrey failed to stop at the red lights. That answer would have to wait until the upcoming coroner's inquest. The day after the report was released, the driver, Robert Jeffrey, issued a written statement to the media. It was his first statement since the accident. Jeffrey insisted that he was following proper procedures at the time of the crash and that he obeyed all track signals. He thought he had an amber signal light over a lunar signal light that allowed him to proceed through the subway tunnel with caution. The TTC maintained that he, in fact, had an amber over green, which means be prepared to stop ahead. 
For Jeffrey, the rest of what happened that day was unclear. Because of the injuries and the trauma he suffered, he couldn't recall what happened after he left the station. He couldn't recall driving past three red signals. Later, when the inquest was held, I was in coroner's court and watched as Jeffrey took the stand and repeated the same thing. He testified that he had racked his brain and agonized and dreamed about it, but with much regret, he had no recollection of the signals. Jeffrey told the coroner and the five-person jury that he was operating to the best of his abilities and knowledge that day, but it had come to his attention since then that he likely made a mistake. He said it was possible that he misread the signal leaving the station, and he felt a responsibility for that. He testified that he has never, ever said that he was totally blameless. On the stand, Jeffrey appeared very likable. He seemed somewhat at ease and almost talkative at times. During breaks and questioning, he would quickly glance over at the seats filled with family members, including his brother, Dave. They shot back reassuring smiles. Outside coroner's court, it was a media frenzy when Jeffrey's made a brief statement. Everybody just let him walk into the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Let him walk up, guys. Let him walk up. Walk so if you could just walk right, right up here, please. Up here, please. Just keep yeah. coming forward. Thank you. Keep coming forward. And uh, we ready? Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I just I'd like to say how filled with enormous regret that I am that this accident ever happened. I cannot imagine the uh, suffering that the uh, families of the victims and the injured have gone through through this uh, terrible crash and I'm really sorry that innocent lives have been so dramatically affected by all this I realize on the other hand that I'm extremely lucky to be alive and talking to you all today and I hope that uh, my testimony at the uh, coroner's inquest today is helpful that uh, an another accident like this will never happen my wife Maggie and my entire family have have stood beside me throughout this whole ordeal. And all I really want to do now is find my young son and give him a big kiss and a hug. Jeffrey's brother Dave also spoke to reporters. My name's Dave Jeffrey, Rob's brother. We support our brother all the way. It's been quite an ordeal. We want to express our deepest sympathies to the victims and their families. And uh, ultimately, we hope to find a cause out of this which is what the inquest is all about. And uh, also, I'd like to say that we believe our brother played one small little part of this, and that, uh, again, ultimately they'll find what really happened and, uh, and to prevent this cut from ever happening again. Thank you very much. The guard on train 35, Kenneth Edgar, who called for assistance the day of the crash, also testified at the inquest. And afterwards, he told the media he still didn't think that Jeffrey had run a red light. Well, having the experience and the fortune of working with Rob, um, he was not a careless type of a person. Um, I will take probably to my grave the gut feeling that Rob never did anything wrong. But I can't prove it, so... Do you so, think so he went think, through three red lights or not? I think, as I testified in there, I think he had favorable signals. Frank Gomberg, the lawyer for Kinga Zabo's husband, said Jeffrey's claim that he couldn't remember what color the lights were was hard to swallow. 
He also said that Jeffrey was trying to make himself out to be a victim. And I find that a little bit difficult to, uh, to relate to. I mean, uh, Mr. Jeffrey is the guy who went through the Reds. Uh, my client's wife was killed. Uh, Miss, uh, Mr. Reyes was badly hurt. Uh, and uh, Mrs. Reyes was killed and Mrs. Lynn was killed and Mr. Jeffrey portrays himself as the victim. I think that Mr. Jeffrey uh, has been very, very well briefed both by his lawyer and probably by other people and he tells a story in a very sympathetic uh, kind of human way. I mean, how can you not relate to Mr. Jeffrey? But is he the victim? He's not the victim. The people who were hurt and killed are the victims. Mr. Jeffrey is not a victim. Meanwhile, Rob Jeffrey's lawyer, Paul Falzone, defended his client. There's no question that from the beginning, Rob has accepted uh, the personal responsibility. There's no, and and he's, he accepted that from day one, right? He knew that even though, because of amnesia, I mean, he suffered a, an, an amazing trauma. Uh, he, he couldn't remember everything. And I'm, I'm telling you, that was, that was the reality of it. I can tell you, the Rob Jeffrey you saw on the stand was the real Rob Jeffrey. He's a caring, conscientious individual. He really is. And uh, I guess it just, it just comes down to often bad things happen to good people. And that's, that's really the theme. Jean McNabb, the woman who was trapped with her five-year-old son, also testified at the inquest. She told the coroner and the jury about the horrifying hours she and Ricky spent pinned beneath the wreckage. She told the inquest she spent eight days in hospital after the accident and was forced to miss a semester at college. McNabb was now back at school, but would never go on a subway ever again. Her son Ricky was still very frightened and upset about what happened, and he slept with the lights on because of nightmares. McNabb did not want to speak to the media after her testimony, but her lawyer, Murray Miskin, spoke on her behalf. She is very sympathetic to Mr. Jeffrey's situation and the degree of blame which Mr. Jeffrey has received. She can't really speak as to his role in the causation of this accident. Obviously, he had something to do with it in the way he drove, but there were other, issues, other aspects as well. But she's very sympathetic to Mr. Jeffrey and the help and guidance and compassion she, he showed when they were trapped together in that train. Who does she blame? She doesn't really blame people. She says every day she hears more and more of what went wrong, and every day she becomes less interested in getting back on the subway. It's like everything went wrong. The Crown prosecutor then dropped a bombshell at the inquiry. He said the TTC had been warned by two outside consultants about problems with signal maintenance and transit control just three months before the crash. The reports which outlined these problems had not been read by senior management. The consultants were hired at a cost of $4.5 million by the TTC's then general manager, Al Leach, in September 1994. Soon after, Leach stepped down to run in the Ontario provincial election. Leach was replaced by David Gunn. Gunn was a big hire. He had previously run the New York City Transit Authority and was credited with turning around the New York subway system in the late 80s. When Gunn took over the Toronto Transit Commission, he fired the consultants. He said they were doing the work he was hired to do. The consultants delivered their reports to Gunn anyway. 
But according to the Crown attorney, Chris Punter, the reports appear to have been buried in a box somewhere, totally ignored, unread by anyone. They only came to light when the consultants themselves contacted investigators looking into the crash. David Gunn said at no point did the consultants ring the alarm bell about what was in the reports, so he had no reason to believe they contained anything related to safety. He said they weren't trying to hide the reports from the inquest and that they had been sent over to the coroner's office a month after the accident. He thought the coroner's office must have lost them. A closer look at one of the reports proved Gunn was right. It didn't flag any serious safety concerns. But it did fault poor communications within the organization and cited a lack of rigorous preventative maintenance program for the subway equipment and cars. The other report raised a more serious concern with the Transit Control Centre. It said poor communication and cooperation within the TTC could lead to gross errors that would expose the public to danger. It went on to say that a lack of formal training for staff in the Transit Control Centre could hinder the response to an emergency in the system. But again, neither report was read by anyone at the TTC. The Crown also mentioned rumours that some subway drivers were in possession of something called a high-rate key. These keys could apparently accelerate a subway train faster than allowed under normal operations. Only line mechanics were supposed to have them. Any driver caught with a high-rate key could be fired. But the rumour was that the keys were easily duplicated and passed around to 90% of the drivers. A high-rate key didn't allow drivers to override any safety features, but it would allow operators running behind schedule to accelerate faster and make up time during their daily runs. The key was allegedly popular on older, slower trains, and when a tight schedule often left operators running behind, especially on long stretches. Reporters at the time of the inquest found drivers who confirmed that, yes, these keys existed. And the general manager of TTC operations admitted that some drivers had been caught in the past with the keys. The inquest also revealed that the signal system on the Spadina subway line where the accident occurred had problems right from the start. When the line was built 20 years earlier, in 1975, the TTC selected a firm to install the signal lights that had little to no experience installing signal lights on a main line. This is because the firm came in at $3 million less than other bidders. The firm bought Ericsson trip arms from Sweden for the new line. Trip arms are a safety feature designed to stop a train. The problem with these is that the arms didn't work properly on the TTC, so they had to be modified. And this led to a major flaw that contributed to the crash. The TTC employee who was superintendent of signals testified at the inquest that the signals were total junk and a maintenance nightmare. He said as a result, the emergency braking system on the Spadina line was only half as good as other systems used by the TTC. But it wasn't a safety issue up until the crash. 
they were just twice as likely to need repairs, causing delays for trains and costing the system money. When the head of the TTC, David Gunn, took the stand, he said the buck stopped with him for the failure of management to ensure the system was safe, even though the accident happened just seven months after he took over as the head of the TTC. As Gunn took the stand, he apologized to the families of the three victims who died and admitted that management was at least partly to blame. The failure was both mechanical and human, with a fairly heavy managerial component on the human side. He said the TTC took what happened very personally and was very sorry it happened. Gunn also admitted that the TTC failed to ensure that Jeffrey was trained properly. He shouldn't have been in the driver's seat at that time, and that was management's fault. When he took over, the TTC was facing enormous fiscal pressures and management had been under incredible pressure to keep the place running and regular maintenance of the training, track and signal system had been deferred. Al Leach, the former head of the TTC, who was now a provincial cabinet minister, was called to testify. He said while he was in charge, he was not made aware of any serious safety problems with the system and that no one, including the driver's union, had ever complained about the training program. At the end of the inquest, jurors made 18 recommendations on how to improve safety on Toronto's subway system including the creation of an independent body to oversee subway and streetcar operations in Toronto. It also called for an overhaul of training programs and better communications throughout the TTC. And jurors said safety should take paramount over expensive new expansion projects. The lawyer for Mr. Jeffrey, Paul Falzone, felt his client was somewhat vindicated by the recommendations. You got to read between the lines of this verdict and the recommendations. You have to, you have to see what they're really saying. Is that to, to, to a large extent the system failed Rob Jeffrey? Is he and, the victim? Is that what you're saying? No, he's not. You know, he, I'm not saying he's the victim. I'm saying that the recommendations speak for themselves, and to some extent the system failed him. He didn't. He didn't feel confident. He wasn't. He wasn't trained in the appropriate manner. The actions speak louder than words here. The TTC went from a 12-day training to a 30-day training period. That, that tells you more about what was happening before than any words. In the years that followed the crash, Rob Jeffrey moved on with his life and opened a coffee shop. Inside the TTC's head office, almost all senior managers have kept a picture of the faulty trip arm hanging in their offices. It's a reminder to be vigilant and to not become complacent. A small brass plaque buried in the subway tunnel between St. Clair West and DuPont stations marks the spot of the crash and commemorates the lives lost. It was the first subway-related fatality since the Young Line opened in 1954. Its importance can't really be overstated. It was the single event that led to a complete overhaul of the TTC. The inquest held into the deaths at Russell Hill, coupled with a TTC report tabled at the hearings, produced a 236-item menu to improve the system. 
first and foremost, that little Ericsson switch. The one that didn't do its job when train 35 hurtled toward train 34. Well, nearly 300 of those flawed trip arms, which were intended to halt a train if it ran a red light, were replaced. Then a $60 million control centre was built, and the TTC has become almost obsessed with ticking each item off the list. Far beyond the list, however, Russell Hill has informed almost every aspect of the Commission's work over the years. Maintenance is now organized by a computer, which keeps track of all scheduled work. Every subway segment now has its own inspection schedule and protocol. Each of the system's 1,200 trip arms, for example, is now tested and measured up to eight times a year. Training for drivers has also changed. Under the new mandate, driver training for subways was extended from 12 days to six weeks, and operators are required to go back to class for three days every two years. Prior to Russell Hill as well, subway operators were rarely punished for violating signals. And often, subway drivers familiar with the system would run full steam up to the red lights, knowing that they would likely change to green by the time they hit them. Today, new onboard technologies allow transit control officials to monitor each subway train and every signal violation is treated as a serious offence. Drivers who blow through three stop signals in any 12-month period are banned from subway operations for two years. Emergency training and procedures have also been vastly upgraded since the accident, where confusion and communications problems hindered rescue efforts. A new communication system has been installed, which allows police and emergency workers to speak to each other underground, and it allows emergency calls to take priority over the entire network. The TTC had an unexpected opportunity to test its emergency response initiatives in the summer of 2003, when the Eastern Seaboard electricity blackout stranded 31 trains inside tunnels. The systems worked without a hitch. Toronto's subway system is generally considered very safe, considering it carries more than a million passengers every day. Its record of getting commuters from one place to another in one piece is fairly impressive. In fact, the TTC, for all its problems, has won numerous awards over the years for its safety record. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the underbelly of Toronto's subway system. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History or on Facebook and Instagram. And you can reach me by email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. 
Dila Velasquez is our producer and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.